We're going to be in 1 Peter chapter 1, the latter portion of that today, uh, beginning in verse 22. And we're going to look through chapter 2 and verse 12. We'll read those uh, together in a moment. Um, I want to ask you this question as we start this morning. Have you ever seen something that is, is so powerful, so incredible, so beloved that you thought it would stand forever? That it would never fall Never be overtaken, never be replaced. I want to take you back to a time period that I would probably refer to in some ways as the golden age of my life, and this would be the middle of a decade called the 1990s. Uh, look, as a kid, I loved stories, and we all still do, right? But I loved stories as a kid. And when you think that, you think, like, oh, he must have been an avid reader. And I was the kind of kid that was like, I want to read as many books as I can so I can get the little book at coupon so I can go to Pizza Hut and get the personal pan pizza for free. Um, that was, like, the extent of my, like, desire to read when I was young, right? But I still love stories. I still loved being entertained. I still loved media. So I'd watch movies and play video games. And as a kid... I lived for Friday quite often, because on Fridays, our family would go to Blockbuster Video, and I would rent this game, or I would rent this movie, and it would consume me for 48 hours until it was due back, right? And then I took it back. Or a couple times inadvertently, I bought that movie or video game, I think, or my parents did, right? <laughs> Do you remember this? Do you remember the feeling of going to grab that movie, going to get that video game, and just being lost in it and thinking, like, this is the best thing ever? Two days trying to beat the game, two days watching the movie over and over again until you had to return it. You guys don't understand this um, at all. Like, on any level. Just wait till we get to rotary phones at some point. Um, I wasn't a business-minded kid as a child on any level. But I remember thinking, like, how does it get any better than this? Like, Blockbuster Video is killing it. They are absolutely crushing the game. These people have it figured out. What could top this? Nothing's going to overturn this. Nothing's going to destroy this, Right? Blockbuster Video was here to stay. Now we look back and laugh, right? There's, uh, think about how silly this is. Like everything we watch, we stream, and it's on demand, and it's instant. And even before that, Blockbuster was killed by Redbox and Netflix, but not the Netflix we know, the Netflix where they would like mail you the DVD, right? Crazy stuff. Think about how wild this is. Like in this day and age, you kids aren't going to believe this, but we built brick-and-mortar stores and they had movies, and they were like in these little plastic boxes with tape. It was wild. Think about that. And I thought, I really thought, this stuff is going to last forever. This is amazing. Blockbuster video is not going anywhere. It just goes to show you that, that kings and rulers, empires even if they're video cassette rental empires, fall. Everything does. Powers and leaders and all of these things go. Every kingdom will fall except for one 
kingdom. And it's the kingdom of God in Jesus Christ. This is what Peter's writing about. He's describing to these believers the kingdom, not only that will not fail, that will not fall, but the kingdom of which they are actually a genuine part. He goes so far as to say that they are a living stone in it. That they were being built up into this body of which Christ, the king, is the head. In this incredible passage today, we're going to see this group of people who are sojourners and exiles, people who don't have any business really in the world that they're in. Peter's writing these people that are being persecuted in the culture in which they exist. Not, Not physical always, but they're being mocked. There's religious persecution. They're living under threat. They're verbally abused. They're misunderstood, and they're not respected. In many ways, it looks like and feels like the world in which we increasingly find ourselves day by day here in our world. Last week, we saw Peter describe to them in verses 1 through 9 this picture of the fact that though they are lonely, they are not alone. And though they have been persecuted, it is not without purpose. Finally, they feel homeless, truly, but they are not hopeless. As we're going to see in this passage today, he's going to write to these sojourners, write to these who are exiles, and he's going to explain to them, these people who are humans, just like you and me, that are searching for belonging, that are not a part of this world, they're searching for belonging, and Peter's going to write to them and say, you belong. You fit in. And you're connected to something that's deeper and richer and more powerful and more beautiful than anything this world can offer you. In these verses today, we're going to see these three things. Number one, that that belonging, we have belonging through belief in Jesus Christ. Second, that we belong to God through his merciful possession, him possessing us. And finally, this. It affects our actions and who we are. We behave differently than the broken world in which we live. This is 1 Peter chapter 1, beginning at verse 22, and we'll read through chapter 2, verse 12. It says this. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. For all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers, and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that would preach to you. So put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. Like newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up into salvation, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in scripture, behold, I'm laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe. 
But for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. This is the word of the Lord to which we say together. Thanks be to God. Number one, Peter writes and he assures these believers that they have belonging through belief in Jesus Christ. They have belonging through belief in Jesus Christ. Now remember, these are persecuted Christians. They're on the the margins. They're on the outskirts, really, in this Greco-Roman world. The Roman Empire is one of the most dominant and powerful empires that the world would ever know. And obviously, at this moment, an incredibly and increasingly powerful one here in the first century. And people are genuinely affected by it. All of these Christians find themselves, at least internally, at odds with the world that they see around them. When Peter describes the fact that malice and deceit and hypocrisy and envy and slander are all things that are running rampant, he's talking about and really pointing us to a historical picture of a world in which people would do anything that it took to get a leg up. Anything that it took to rise above those who were around them. They would act hypocritically because of their envy, and they would slander people in the process. Now, why would people do that in the Roman world? Here's why. Historically, the group that Peter is writing to are a group of people who found their identity in relationship to the empire, the world in which they were connected. So it meant a ton to be somebody in society. It meant a ton to have some sort of identity, to have some sort of recognition within this culture. And people would do anything they could to get it. And you might say, well, okay, Mike, well, what does that have to do with belief? Everything. Absolutely everything. Peter is saying that the Christian is one who looks at this world and all that it has to offer in every trapping and all the things that seemingly look incredible from wealth and fortune and fame, sex, whatever it is. He says, you don't live the way that the world does. All of these people that are trying to carve out an identity, that are trying to find belonging, that are trying to find some sense of purpose in this world are doing so, one, in heinous ways, but two, they're trying to do it through human accomplishment. They were trying to be somebody. They were trying to earn status. They were trying to have more money. They were trying to have a political position, even locally, trying to be someone in the eyes of others. And he says, don't you understand? 
that God's kingdom is not about those who seemingly accomplish things and are willing to do it by any means necessary. God's kingdom is full of people who are sinners who have accomplished absolutely nothing and yet have everything because they believed in the finished work of Jesus Christ. What it means to be a Christian is not one to even, in reference to God, to try to earn His favor, to accomplish things in the way that the world does. No, but instead to be one who totally and fully, completely yields to, leans upon, rests in, submits oneself to the work of Christ on our behalf. That's what a Christian is. Peter says, to be one who belongs, to be a part of this incredible thing that he just lists, this this chosen race, this royal priesthood, this group of people that is set apart to be a part of God's family, to be in relationship with God, is not to attempt to get to God, it's to trust in the God that has come to you in Jesus. To rest in the word who has taken on flesh and dwelt among us. Because as John's gospel said, those who have believed in Jesus have been given the right to become children of God. It's about belief and trust in Jesus. This is what it means to belong to God, to be a part of his family, to be a part of his kingdom. So Peter is going to really push this forward. He's going to do this with passive language. Look at verse 23. He's going to say, since you have been born again. Since you have been born again. Notice that this language is not such that it's like, you went and got saved. You did it. Man, you chose it and you got it and you made it happen. No, this is what Christ has done for us. You have been born again, made anew by Jesus through his spirit. Look at verse 5. You, like yourselves, living stones are being built up. Notice, it's not, we're not building ourselves up. God has done this for us and is doing this in us. How does that happen? How does that take place? Because we've believed in, we've trusted in, we've rested in the finished work of Jesus Christ. His life, his death, his resurrection. That is the good news, as Peter describes in verse 25 of chapter 1, that was preached to them. That's how we get our belonging. Not by earning it. Not by attaining it, but by receiving it truly from the God who has given us everything in his son, Jesus Christ. We have belonging through belief in Jesus Christ. Look at verse 7. So the honor is for you who believe. The society that Peter's writing to is one that is filled with honor and shame. And this is kind of hard for us to really connect with in a, in a Western world that's really individualistic. But look... Did you ever grow up in one of those families where, like, you don't want to hurt the family name? Any of those people here, right? Like, where, like, don't do that. You don't, you don't, want, to, you don't want to sully the good name that we've made, right? Like, there's this level of honor where it's like, hey, I want to, I want to make sure I honor people. I want to honor where I came from. I want to honor my parents. I want to, want to love my family. I want to be people who are people of honor, not people who bring shame. Well, The culture to which Peter is writing is one in which people long to have honor and even earn honor and receive honor in the culture. This is the last culture in the world where you wanted to be an outcast and you wanted to be ashamed. And this is what Peter is saying. He's like, you don't understand. 
God's kingdom is so vastly different. This beautiful paradoxical thing happens where he says, look, this is how you receive honor. Not by what you accomplish, not by what you do, but just by believing in Jesus and trusting in his finished work on your behalf. That's what it means to belong to the family of God, to believe in Jesus and what he has done. We have longing through belief in Jesus Christ. Second, he describes that we belong to God through his merciful possession. Look, all, all of these people in, in this place, in, in Asia Minor, what we would call present-day Turkey at this time, these churches that Peter's writing to, and it's filled with people who are experiencing persecution, and they're on the outside, and they just want to belong. And he describes to them and tells them, specifically beginning in verse 9, the kind of belonging that they have. The kind of belonging that goes far beyond any sort of club or any sort of social recognition they could get, any sort of gathering they could get, any sort of group that's popular, anything in society that would bring them some sort of merit or valor or recognition. Any of those things fall terribly short of the belonging they experience in God. And here is how. Look at verse 9. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation... And look at this phrase, a people for his own possession. Now, here's the thing about you and me. Um, we like stuff. We like stuff. Even if you're the saver and you're not the spender in your family, and our family didn't get a saver. Um, uh, so, and look, I'm, I'm, I'm equally a part of this, all right? Uh, but look, here's the thing. We all like stuff. We all like some measure of comfort, and there are things that we like to have. Things that ultimately, in Peter's language, we like to possess. And so whether it's the car keys that are in your pocket today, or, or, or the phone that's in your purse that you hold, or the home in which you live, or the car in which you drive, or, or something that is a collectible or an item that you have that you prize, and we, we as people possess things. We have things and we long to hold them. Peter's writing to a group of people who have identity and who have value in the society in which they live because of what they have. What they have makes them who they are. If they possess something that's important, then they, by proxy, are important. That's just like the world you and I live into, unfortunately. But here is the beautiful thing about God's kingdom and belonging to God that is vastly different than anything the world could offer us in any way, shape, or form. Look at verse 9 and look at how he describes this people. He says, you're a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. Paxton led us through Hebrews 4, 14 and 15 this morning. And really, in Son of Suffering, we're able to sing and recognize that, that God is not distant. That he does come near. That we have a great high priest in Jesus who is not unable to sympathize with our sufferings. But in every respect, in every way, has been tempted just as we are, and yet without sin. It's not just that Jesus has been like us. 
But he's loved us so much so that Jesus possesses us. He holds us. He keeps us. I want you to think about the things that you possess. They're yours. They're really yours. And it doesn't like reach out to you or come to you or like it's yours. You have it and you hold it and it is absolutely fully yours. Do you know that you belong to God? Like you're his. He holds you in his mighty hands. The totality of who you are, if you have repented and believed in Jesus Christ, if you've trusted in him, you are his. Peter uses this possession language to show us the scope of the means of God's love for us. That he holds us fully, that he holds us completely. That we're not going to slip through his hand. That we're genuinely and fully his. That despite how we feel in society and the ways in which Christians are ever increasingly being, being more attacked, we're God's. And that's so much better than belonging to this world. We belong to God. We belong through our belief. And we belong to God through his merciful possession. He holds us. Finally, we behave differently than the broken world in which we live. When you read this passage, really on the front end of chapter 2 and the back end of this section in verses 11 and 12, Peter's given all these practicals about how to live in a broken world. He's describing to this group of people, look, don't be those who are envious and those who slander and those who are hypocrites, those who harm others. He's saying, look, you got to put off those former passions of your flesh that are waging war against your soul. you got to be people that, that others see and they recognize their good deeds and then ultimately see that and say, I've got to glorify God. I've got to praise the God that this person is worshiping. Here's the deal. I think most of us read that and say, this is like, I, if I'm going to stay in this thing, I've got to keep some of these rules. I've got, I got to do some of this stuff. I've got, got to look the part. That's not what Peter's saying here. Peter's saying something vastly different. Because often you and I look at behavior problems or disobedience, and let's just call it what it is. We look at sin, and we say, well, I've just, I kind of haven't mastered that yet. I haven't gotten through that yet. I haven't gotten beyond that yet, or I haven't broken that barrier yet. And as if it's just some sort of like human discipline where it's like, I'm just going to do better, and I'm just going to try to stop. Peter is so focused on helping us understand that it's belief in the gospel that transforms everything because behavior problems are just a belief problem. Behavior problems are a belief problem. And here's what I mean. The, the whole of Scripture would teach us that those people who are righteous are so in faith because they believe in and trust in what Christ has done. Do you know why I sin? Do you know why I do things that, that, are, that are horrible? Horrible things. Evil, terrible things. People that are new are like, I'm not going back to this church. 
Um, but look, when I, when I sin, if I slander someone, or, or, or I'm envious, or I have deceit, or I have malice, you know why I find myself in that position? Because I fail to believe the gospel. I'm in that position because I'm failing to believe in the fact that I'm fully loved. That I'm, I'm, I'm deeply cared for in God. That I've been purchased by His Son, Jesus. That He didn't withhold anything and gave Jesus and all of His riches, all of His grace, all of His mercy to me. When that is true, when I'm seeing that for what it is, I will not sin. Because I won't see it as satisfying. No, because I'm resting in the truth of who Jesus is and what he's done. Peter says that believers are called to live in such a way that they behave differently than the world that they live in. But he also recognizes, and he does so with this analogy of living stones, that they're being built up. That it's a process. And that it's not instantaneous. I remember trusting in Christ and being like, this is cool. We're going to kick this sin thing. We're going to be done with this. Over. Out. Right? It takes a while. We call it sanctification. Peter describes living stones, and he does it for a very particular purpose. When he says a living stone, he's talking about something in this day that would be a stone that was genuinely fashioned in a meticulous and careful way and really artistic and architectural way. A stone that's not rough, like it's not just like a rock you pull out of the yard, right? This rough hewn everywhere, but a stone that has been crafted and shaped and molded. Like 220 grit sandpaper molded, right? Like fashioned finally to grow up and to be transformed. That's what God is doing with us, and he's giving us encouragement to not behave in such a way where we look like the world, but look different. And not just for the sake of just being different or following the rules, but for this sake. For this sake, that others might see our good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. You know what the day of visitation is? That's the return of Christ. So this is what Peter's saying. He's saying, live in this way so that other people will see your good deeds and they'll come to trust in Jesus too. That they'll come to love Jesus too. But it's a hard thing. It's a hard process to to just put off deceit and malice and hypocrisy and envy and slander and the desires of the flesh that wage war against our soul. Easier said than done. I want to read you something from C.S. Lewis's Mere Christianity as we draw to a close. He kind of takes on Peter's imagery of the house. This kingdom of God that people are being built up into. These living stones that are being shaped and transformed by the power of God's spirit in a broken world. And this is what Lewis says. He says, imagine yourself as a living house. God comes in to rebuild that house. And at first, perhaps, you can understand what he's doing. He's getting the drains right and stopping the leaks in the roof and so on. You know, the big stuff. You knew that those jobs needed doing, and so you're not surprised. But presently, he starts knocking the house about in a way that hurts abominably and does not seem to make any sense. What on earth is he up to? The explanation is that he's building quite a different house from the one you thought of. 
throwing out a new wing here, putting on an extra floor there, running up towers, making courtyards. You thought you were being made into a decent little cottage. Ah, but he is building a palace. He intends to come and live in it himself. And he does live in it himself. He lives in us by his spirit. And he's transforming us and he's shaping us and he's changing us. And part of what Peter wants these believers to hear is that, you know what he's using to do that? This broken world they live in. This broken world in which they experience and identify with Christ in suffering. In being on the outside and being pushed to the fringes and being told that their religion is, is, is terrible. That it's oppressive. Trying to speak the truth in love and having people tell you that they identify as something that's not real. That's the world that we live in. And yet in the midst of it, God is calling us to see that we're being transformed, we're being shaped into something more. How many of you watch uh, HGTV shows? That's a lie. It's all of you. And I know that because they just keep making them. Here's the thing. I used to, I used to hate those shows. I really did. I used to hate those shows. But at some point, they're just on long enough and you kind of get enthralled and you're like, I just want to see how this one's going to turn out, right? And these amazing things happen where they take these houses down to just the studs or the bones, and it's just nothing. And you're like, how can anything good come of this? And then it's this magical, amazing place. And now this person who's like a professional juggler moves into this $2 million house, right? (laughs) Here's the thing. These places look terrible. And then they're astounding. It really is a work of art. It's amazing. Can you imagine... What the very spirit of the living God who created the world and everything in it can do inside you? If somebody can take like a, a, a 4-2 in Chelsea and, and, and make it something absolutely incredible that was nothing, what can the spirit of God do in us? Amazing, incredible, transformative things like making us not be people who slander each other. Making us not be people who are out to be envious of others or covet what others have, but actually just rest in and trust in, I I don't need anything more than what I have because what I have in Jesus is absolutely everything and nobody can take it away from me. Can we rest in that reality this morning? And can we look at ourselves and ask this question? Am I living for a kingdom that will never fall? Am I living in such a way that God is shaping me and transforming me as a part of his kingdom? Is that where my heart is? Is that where my treasure is? Is that where my life is? Man, am I believing in Jesus? Am I I accepting the belonging that comes from him rather than this world? And am I someone that's going to live in a way that would cause others to glorify God? In a moment, we're going to sit or stand or, or sing or be silent and read words. Whatever the Lord is leading you to do in this moment, I would encourage you to do that and genuinely worship with us. I want to say this as well. Peter talks about the good news that was preached to them. This is the good news. Though we are all sinners, though we have rebelled and turned against God, God in his love for us has given us Jesus Christ. Jesus lived the life that we couldn't live, tempted yet without sin, 
died for us and rose on the third day that we might have resurrection life in him. If you repent of your sins and believe that, brother or sister, you are new in Christ. And if you're beginning to believe that, then I want to talk with you after this service. If you just need prayer, if you just want to talk about something going on with your, in your life, man, I want to pray for you. I want to be with you to minister to you. We'll close our service with a benediction, but then the service is not over. I'll be here to receive you if I can minister to you in any way. As we prepare to sing and worship, if you will, bow your heads and let's pray together. Heavenly Father, truly, we look different than this world. It is not our home. We are sojourners. We are exiles. We are meant for your kingdom. Our citizenship is in heaven. And yet, while we are here, Father, in the midst of suffering, in the midst of confusion, in the midst of a world gone mad, would you cause us to continually believe in you, to trust in you, to rest in you for our life and our hope, for our belonging. And Father, in the ways that we live, God, would you cause others to see righteousness, not because we're righteous, Father, but because we're trusting in you, the one who is. And would you cause them to glorify you so that they might be brothers and sisters, people who have trusted in you, rejoicing at your arrival on the last day. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.